If you have a Bible, which most of you don't, that's okay. But we can go together to Ephesians 5. Probably you know it by heart. The chapter division is a, a unhelpful one at between 4 and 5. But we won't make much of that yet. So just the first two verses of Ephesians 5. Walk in love. I mean, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. So look at what God does and copy that in your life. Be imitators of God. That's an incredible statement. Be imitators of God. And the way you look at what God does is mainly by reading your Bible and meditating on it and watching His ways from end to end. There's a focus in that text of what you're supposed to look at, namely his love, but I just want us to feel the force first of be imitators of God. Have that be one of the categories of your relationship with him. There are others. In fact, there are more important others like trust, but imitation is one of them and don't eliminate it. Think, what would God do? What does God do? It's a dangerous one because you can't imitate everything God does. He, he's God and you're not. Therefore, he has rights you don't have. And that's why there's a focus of the text, not on everything he does, but on love in particular. But be imitators of God. So he's doing things. When you think the category imitation, you think, I watch a person and then I start doing things the way they do them. The next phrase, as far as my soul goes, radically alters the way I hear the first phrase. Be imitators of God as, he doesn't say children, and therefore children imitate your parents. He says, as loved children. And suddenly, the issue of imitation is not, I'm watching him do it, and I will copy that, but rather, I'm receiving it. It's not going like this, and I'm watching the line of love proceed to people, and I'm supposed to get in line and go with him and love people. That's not the point. Usually, that's the point when we think imitation, but that's not the point here. The point here is, be imitators of God as receiving it as loved children. So, first let's just say children. Be imitators of God as children of God. Own the reality. Embrace the reality. Using the words of the, of the uh, fighter verse, bind on your heart the reality God is my father, and I am his child. 
Say it to yourself over and over again. Because it's supposed to have profound emotional effect here, which I'm going to end on it in a little while. It's supposed to do some really deep things that we are children of God, that He's our Father. And then He puts the word loved children. Loved children. There are unloved children. There are bad fathers. God's not one of them. The word loved makes it clear. He is a father and the dominant relationship in this verse between father and child is not authority, but love. So when you think imitate God, think he's not just loving people and I'm supposed to do what he does and love people, but he's loving me, which evidently must mean I'm supposed to get strength from being loved by the Father to imitate the Father. That He loves me is what empowers me to become more like Him. So a huge question for me is, when did God start loving me like this? Or to use the the phraseology of uh, Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he is totally for us. That's what it means to be a loved child. You know, when you have Hebrews 12 talking about the father who disciplines, you have not yet resisted under the shedding of blood. He's treating you like children. If there's no discipline, you are not children. So even in the times when we're on the brink of shedding blood, he's loving. So he's totally for us. When did God begin to relate to me that way? It's not an easy question to answer. Because in one sense, God was for us in eternity. Right? Because he chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. So God was for you in terms of electing love in eternity. And why wouldn't I just say, well, that's when it began. That's when he started loving me like a father and was totally for me. And the reason we can't say it is because of Ephesians 2.3. Which says, we were children of wrath by nature like the rest of mankind. We Christians were once children of wrath. So there was electing love and then there was wrath on me. Elect me under wrath. So God for me in terms of election, meaning I'm intending someday to be this for you, and I'm not now. I'm angry, really angry, angry with the kind of anger that sends to hell without something happening. So it hasn't, where, where did he start to do this? Where did he 
change in his orientation toward me so that he's now not electing love plus wrath, but totally for me. And I mean totally, not one millimeter, not one millisecond, not one micro ounce against me. Where did that happen? And uh, the text has another verse that says, um, my page is blue, sorry. I think I know it. Um, Be imitators of God as loved children and walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you, a sweet-smelling Fragrance pleasing to God. So it shifts from be imitators of God as loved children, love coming from God, to walk in love. So now we know what the imitation is supposed to look like. Walk in love. And then it says, as Christ loved you. So you got the Father loving you. you got Christ loved you. And then you get that massive, central gospel reference and gave himself for you. A sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Father. So there had to be a sacrifice so that the wrath of God would be averted onto that sacrifice and away from me. And all the requirements that have ever been made of me would be fulfilled by him. So those two things. He becomes a perfect sacrifice. He becomes a perfect, all-satisfying righteousness or obedience. And once that's done, is that where it changed? No. That's where it was purchased. That's where it was founded. That's where it was secured and guaranteed But I was born a sinner, a child of wrath, and for years, various numbers of years in this group, God's wrath was upon me. And then one day, by God's Spirit, there was a quickening of a dead, rebellious heart. And God brought to life in that moment of quickening a trust, a A recognition, I'm a goner under wrath unless I receive a perfect sacrifice and a perfect obedience that was performed for me 2,000 years ago. And at that moment, when you received Christ as your sacrifice, as your obedience, God became totally for you. Justification, I believe, is God's effective declaration. No condemnation, totally for you. Just, righteous, forgiven, accepted, totally loved. Totally for you. So follow the 
Follow the reasoning of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. All things work together for good. Now, that all things is what I mean by totally for you. So something bad happens to you from a smashed finger to a lost spouse to cancer in your body, whatever. The, the, the terrible thing happens. At that moment, God is totally for you because of the words, all things work together for good for those who love God. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not freely with him give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. See, if you just put that logic together, you will have under your feet the most massive assurance. God is totally for me because he didn't spare his own son, because he he knew me, and he predestined me, and he called me, and he justified me, and he secured my glorification. He is totally for me. Nobody can successfully be against me. Now, that, I think, is all implied in the words, as loved children. That's what it means to be loved by God. God doesn't love like anybody else. He had to do all of that from eternity to eternity. As loved children, now Bethlehem staff. Imitate God, verse 1. Walk in love, verse 2. Imitate God, walk in love, as verse 2. So it raises the question, so what's the function of works of love if Christ has become our perfect obedience? If Christ has become our perfect sacrifice and we can't make a sacrifice that puts God on our side and Christ has become a perfect righteousness, a perfect obedience, Romans 5.19, by his obedience of one man, many are appointed Righteous. If Christ has become our perfect obedience, then what becomes of our obedience? What's the role of our obedience? And I just want to say as clearly as I know how, it cannot be to put God on your side. Because that happened when in that first childlike receiving act of faith, you took him as your obedience, and you took him as your sacrifice. He became at that moment a perfect fulfillment of all of God's requirements on you. So what's the function then of our work of love, our acts of obedience? And taking my cue from 
Matthew 5.16, the answer is, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. The point of loving each other is to display the kind of Christ we have received as our all-satisfying treasure. And what have we received? We have received a perfect sacrifice and a perfect fulfillment of all of God's righteous demands. Which means that if we conceive of our obedience as putting us into God's favor, we obscure the very thing we're supposed to be reflecting, namely Christ as our perfectly satisfying obedience. We must, as a staff, love each other in a way that reflects the glory of the whole work of Christ. We must love each other in a way that says, He has totally absorbed the punishment against me. And He has totally provided the righteous demands of God on me. I cannot conceive of my obedience as in any way adding to the obedience that puts God on my side. In fact, the better way to say it is the reason we are enabled to live a way that displays that Christ is because that Christ is the power that enables us to live that way. If we reverse it, two horrible things happen. One, we undercut the very power by which we can live by love, namely having a perfect obedience and a perfect satisfaction, making God totally on our side, which is the only power by which you can love. And secondly, we don't glorify him for what he truly is, namely the one who is our obedience and is our sacrifice, which is why this whole justification issue that I spent four weeks on is so Important Love is at stake. Sacrifice is at stake. Glorifying God and Christ for who they really are is at stake. So let's close with a few really practical overflows of this because the text is incredibly practical. Go back and find it. What does it look like at Bethlehem? What will it look like among the staff if we... if our lives become the stream flowing down from this unbelievably precious assurance. That's what we've been talking about. Assurance of salvation. The confidence that God is totally for you. Totally. Can't increase. His his gentleness can increase. (laughs) Meaning, he doesn't spank you as often. But his being for you and loving you can't increase. So here are some practical ways that it looks. Go back up a verse. That's why I said the chapter division was not helpful. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I wrote down five ways it's going to look from the preceding verses. Number one, sacrifice. We're in 5-2. I'll stay here for just a minute. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. 
to God. So walk in love as Christ sacrificed. So there's going to be on this staff over the coming months a lot of sacrifice for each other. If you walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself, it's going to look like sacrifice, which means that some are going to be in situations that require of others inconvenience and pain. I think that's what sacrifice is, right? Sacrifice is not easy. It wouldn't be called sacrifice if it was easy. It might bring joy, might baloney. It will bring joy. It's more blessed to give than to receive, but it hurts anyway. So to get up late at night or get up early in the morning or to go out of your way, let's just, let's just be that for each other. That's application visualization. Number one, it's going to look like sacrifice. It's going to be sacrifice. Number two, it's going to be forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the most practical outworking in the text of be imitators of God. As God in Christ forgave you, forgive each other. Be imitators of God. There it is. This is crystal clear application, which means that on this staff, we're going to offend each other and then have to deal with it, Right? Somebody's going to say something. Somebody's going to forget to do something. Those are the two biggies, probably. Other ways we get hurt. And uh, neglect and words. We, we don't usually hit each other on this staff. So I, but, but, but you can say things and you can neglect things. And then you can feel bad. and So let's be a real forgiving staff. And evidently, for Paul, the key to forgiveness was, uh, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, that's not just a model. That's a coming your way of forgiveness. You're not watching him forgive Chuck. Okay, I guess I should forgive Chuck because God forgave Chuck. Well, yeah, that's true, but it's God came to me with forgiveness. That's the way he's reasoning here. And I need to feel that so much that how could I hold a grudge against anybody? That's the way it should feel. Work it should work should affect your marriages that way and should affect each other. So that's number two, forgiveness. Number three, it says, still in verse thirty two, right before the chapter break that shouldn't be there. Be kind to one another Tender-hearted, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Kindness. Random kindness. You do that well, I think. It's a lot of kindness on this staff. A lot of, a lot of uh, little candy bars that show up, or little little things that happen. That's just kind. I think kindness uh, means uh, being helpful practically helpful in ways that have emotional significance. They're not just kind of, oh, I guess I'm supposed to do something nice. That's, that's not kindness, but kindness has an emotional component to it. Christos, the Greek. I, I think the reason Paul is so negative here, this is the fighter verse a few weeks ago, 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. We, when we memorize that as a family, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Noel made the suggestion. No, no, it should be said like this. With all malice. Not malice is another component in the list. But it goes like this. Let all wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. All that stuff is malice. It's a summary statement. It's not another piece. It's a summary statement. I thought that was sharp. (laughs) I got a sharp wife. (laughs) That that is sharp. I just think that's right with all malice. Because then if you ask, what's bad about this stuff? Malice means I have an ill will to somebody. I can do it with words. I can do it with neglect. I can do it with face. I can do it with shoulders. I can, all kinds of ways. I can have ill will. I can show ill will towards somebody. So kindness I think it's just being underlined by saying, and here's the opposite. Here's the, here's the way it doesn't look. Just don't do any of that stuff. Let's be overcome evil with, with good, with kindness. That's number three. First, sacrifice. Second, forgive. Third, be kind. And then another fighter verse. Let's just do a little test here, okay? I'm gonna, I wish I had a reward. If I had a candy bar, I would give you a reward. But who can, without looking... Now say Ephesians four twenty nine. Let no Is that the way it starts? If we get started, most of us a lot of us can do it. I'll help you get started here. Four twenty nine. Let no. <laughs> now come on, I'm gonna be I don't want to make the day bad. Somebody knows Ephesians four twenty nine because you're a mom who doesn't want your kids. <laughs> okay, there we go. All right, I don't care. Amen. And the and the ESV is something like, "Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only uh, what is." Say it. building up that it may minister grace to those who are in need. Let's do that. I call that uh, only words that build up. They're not always easy words. We will rebuke each other. We'll get in each other's face if we find any pride or sin or whatever. But but our, our mindset will be, I'm, I'm going to build up here. I'm going to get underneath here. I'm not going to squash them. I'm underneath pushing up. I'm going to give life here. I'm not going to take life. I'm going to give life. So let's just guard our mouths so that we use words. Last one. And this is the one that probably prompted this whole devotion, although there were various roots to it. It's the word tenderhearted. I'll read the whole verse. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. There's the ver- word. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, therefore be imitators of God. And so forget the chapter break, and it's all one piece. So here you have tender-hearted. You splunk noy. <laughs> you splunk noy. 
spent four hours in counseling yesterday with somebody. Counselors, and you can hear it coming out of Tom's mouth a lot, are the most heavy-duty people requiring of us to deal with our hearts. Right, Tom? Always pushing on the heart issue, not just the cognitive issue. We're a, we're a cognitive church, big time. We love theology. We believe in the Bible. This is a B-O-O-K. It must be R-E-A-D in English, Greek, and Hebrew, and U-N-D-E-R-S-T-O-O-D. That's a given. All right. However, we're not just that as human beings. We don't just read, and we don't just think, and we don't just write. We have these this reality called heart. And sometimes us cognitive types, and sometimes rightly, use belittling language for the psycho folks that they're a little too touchy-feely for us. And some people go overboard with touchy-feely. We're probably not in danger of that. Um... So I, being a very cognitive type, uh, need biblical in-your-face illustrations that God really cares about the splunknoi. You know what that translates? Guts. Intestines. And you splunknoi is good intestines. Isn't that a strange word to put right here in how to imitate God? Tender-hearted. It's a real loose translation. Tender-hearted. A good one. But I just think we breeze over that like a tender-hearted. That really means beneath the mind, beneath the body, there is this visceral felt that causes the the heaving, the tears, the and it's not just physical at that moment. It's touching depths of personhood. And I just want to say to us, let's cultivate that at Bethlehem. So growing out of that four hour session yesterday, I'll tell you what I took away from my job. Um, how does that happen? How, how does how do hearts awaken? How does two people talking move from mere clarification of ideas or uh, ministry strategies or recipes to cook or nice day or whatever, down to a level where suddenly the deep, call it what you want, spirit, soul, heart, person, is being touched 
moved, hurt, or nurtured? How's that happen? And I'll give you uh, three things that were directed at me in this counseling situation. Number one, time together. Now, I'm just going to leave aside the miracle, okay? The miracle of God in this is a given. If you want to harden yourself against being touched or touching, you can push God away. But I'm talking, if your heart is, yes, yes, I want to be known at that level. I want to know at that level. I want to touch and minister and awaken and affect people at that level, marriages at that level, children at that level. If, if your heart is yes to what I'm saying right now, you splunknoid, tender-hearted, not just cognitive, then this is for you. Number one, time. It doesn't happen on the fly. And there are people, and it can't be many. I just, that's what's so sad about the ministry. But there are a few people in your life. Your spouse would, is, is where you'd start. Your kids is where you'd go next. And then maybe a few others. Spend, spend enough time that it goes there. You know, if, if everybody had that mindset, probably nobody would be left out. If I have to do that for 500 or 1,000 or 100 or 20, it won't happen. But as a pastor, I must do it with a certain core, and I don't know how big that core can be. I'm going to stick in a parenthesis here because it just came to mind. This might help some of you. This has been a heavy-duty last several days. I'm feeling pretty close to the emotional edge, and it's good. But Noel and I talking about this counseling thing that we were a part of um, yesterday. Got a call. Here we are talking through this other counseling. Got a call from another person. And for an hour and a half dealing with that, the two of us on the same phone, dealing with another heart issue. And I just lost where I was going to go with that. Shoot. Um, Time. Lord, if it doesn't come, I'll assume it's not uh, necessary. It doesn't, but maybe it will as I finish. I'm almost done. Um, Close that parenthesis that got lost. Um, And everything's lost, (laughs) in fact. Um, We're on on number five, tenderhearted. Yeah, time, time. You've got to spend enough time and invite somebody into that. And pers- Here's number two, almost the same, pursue. So when you're spending time, you pursue the heart. You Splunk Noy. Please don't hear psychology here. Hear Ephesians 4.32, all right? If, you, if you're worried about touchy-feely, just deal with Ephesians 4.32. Tender-hearted, you splunk noi. Good guts. 
pursue that. Pursue it. Intentionally want it. Don't be settled for any other way. Can't happen quickly. Give it enough time. Recurring time. Extended time. And number three, questions. It's just a form of pursuit. Asking questions, not just making pronouncements. And asking you Splunknoi questions. Tender-hearted questions, questions that get at the heart and are trying to awaken this person to more tenderness, to touch them at a level that they haven't been touched at. A lot of us here are parents. Raise your hand if you're a parent right here. Okay. Half, more than half. Um, and, and the rest of you are parental in, in touching children one way or the other. This is big. Shepherding a child's heart is worth the price of the book. I mean, the title is worth the price of the book because it, it simply highlights what so many parents don't grasp. So many parents think this is a matter of behavior control. Just get this kid to hold his fork, not like this, but like this, and to say yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, and shake hands, and say hello, and go to bed on time, and stay in bed, and a hundred other things. And if I've got this child doing what he's supposed to be doing, I've done parenting. And uh, I'm just I'm just learning how better I could have done it. And I'm so thankful that at age 61, I have an 11-year-old daughter to do it over again. That really is a big deal to me right now because, you know, if you're 61 and you learn you did it poorly, that's that. But if you're 61 and you learn you could have done it better, and there she is. <laughs> there she is. So prove. Prove that you care about this. Prove that there's some sense of growth or some sense of... And there. And uh, So, very concretely, and I'll say this and I'll stop. Um, when I, having learned from my 25-year colleague, David Michael, to bless my daughter, so she's blessed with my words every night because you exist, David Michael. If you didn't exist, I wouldn't be doing that unless somebody else had come along to be you. I put my hand on her little cap that she wears at night and uh, say various words. Usually I default to the Lord bless you and keep you and then I add some words to it according to what the stresses of the day were. And when I'm done now and I sing my little song, now I say, how are you feeling? And I say, at school today, did anybody say anything that was helpful or hurtful? And this little flower opens at 8.15. And last night we just talked about a girl in her class that she used to like and was betrayed. <laughs> My son's never spoke to me about betrayal. <laughs> but that may not be because they didn't experience it, but because I didn't do this sort of thing with them. And so we talked it through about what love looks like and
Bethlehem. Here's the five ways that all that theology should produce itself in us. Sacrifice, forgiveness, be kind, no malice. Only words that build up and uh, enough time with enough people and enough pursuit and enough questions that we touch the heart. Father in heaven, I love this group. There's kind of a big love, and then there are these particular personal individual loves, and I feel it grow every time we're together. And so I pray that you would take these big doctrinal issues of Romans 8 and justification and the removal of your wrath and the establishment of yourself as being totally for us so that we can risk heart things and sacrifice and apply it to us as a staff. Make this summer the best summer we've ever had. Make the coming years the best we've ever known. Grant to this church to flourish for the glory of Jesus until you come or until you call. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.